I'm going to show you a couple of graphs that came from the last census uh, that uh, indicate that there are less people who would call themselves Christians here in Tassie uh, than people who would say they have no religion. And so I believe I'm going to click my fingers and point, and look at that. Uh, and you'll see uh, around about 2017, uh, thing, the, the lines crossed. Uh, and uh, we, we would see, so, the, so now less than half of Tasmanians would call themselves Christian. Uh, and uh, more than that, you'll see it's around about half of Tasmanians would say they actually have no religion at all. Uh, there's another graph that shows you that in comparison to the rest of Australia. You can see the, the lines in it for the rest of Australia haven't yet crossed. So what does all that mean for us? Well, there's a, a language that is, has been developing uh, that says we have to come to terms with the idea that Tasmania is post-Christian. One of the things about post-Christianity is uh, a post-Christian society wants all the benefits of Christianity. It wants justice and human rights. It wants respect for individuality. It wants the, a, a cohesive sense of community. It wants all that. But it doesn't want the price of Christianity, the, the price of uh, being willing to say that Jesus is Lord. In fact, uh, Mark Sayers says, in a post-Christian society, people want a kingdom, but they want the kingdom of God without a king. And we've been talking a lot about vaccines, haven't we, the last few years? Uh, sadly, I think in a post-Christian society, people become inoculated to the truth of Christianity. People become inoculated to the truth of Christianity. Inoculation is where you give a dead piece of virus into somebody's uh, system and uh, what happens is your immune system builds up so when it sees that virus turn up, it goes and attacks the virus and, and it becomes immune to the virus. And, and in many ways, I think sadly, people have encountered dead versions of Christianity and become immune. And as we dive into this passage, Matthew 23, you'll see uh, Jesus' main concern about the Pharisees is the impact they have on people who are wanting to respond to the truth of the gospel. The impact they have on people who are open and the fact that they are leading them in the wrong direction. Let's have a look at what he says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves don't enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. The word there, woe, actually in the Greek means something different to our English word woe. It's a much deeper, stronger and more complicated word. And there just isn't an English equivalent to it. What, what the word Jesus actually says uh, in the Greek means is both this deep sense of grief, this deep sense of grief, but also a sense of condemnation. He is clearly telling them off, but he's not enjoying doing it. He is deeply sad. That's what the word means. A deep sense of sadness, but also a sense of condemning. It's saying, you're, you're wrong. And the word hypocrite, do you know, this is, 
this is uh, one of the Jesus uh, innovations in the English language. That's what the word hypocrite actually meant, an actor. It was the word, if you went to see uh, a, a play at the local theatre, and there were lots of local theatres, uh, the, the actors were not called actors, they were called hypocrites. And when Jesus says, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven, really important to keep this front and centre. For Jesus, this was his main concern. The, the kingdom of God is what he starts his ministry with and, and is the, the theme of his whole ministry. And what is the kingdom of God? Why is he so upset at the Pharisees? Because they shut the door to it? The kingdom of God is anywhere where God is king. And we've said this a number of times and at the end of the service we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's a place where God's will, what he cares about actually happens. And what he's saying to the Pharisees is, you are creating all these weird and wild stories that take people away from what God actually cares about. I, I think, I mean, it's easy for us. We talked last week about what a Pharisee is. We don't have a political party that you can join at the moment called the Pharisee Party. Probably good that that's true. Uh, but... I, I think there are three distinct groups of people who would merit the same warning from Jesus and, are, in my view, are part of the reason that many people are turning their back on Christianity. Because, as Jesus said, the, the, the Pharisees are the ones that shut the door on the kingdom. We'll look more at that in a minute. He... So what, what's the first group? The first group are people who call themselves Christians and are pretty sure their way of seeing things is the right way of seeing things, but don't do the work to understand the messiness of their own hearts and are quicker to tell other people what they should do then face the truth of the mess inside their own hearts. Of the three groups I'm going to talk about, this group is most likely to be sitting next to you and probably even in your seat, if it's okay to say that. I, I think one of the, the continual journeys of Christianity is to keep turning our eyes upon Jesus and letting ourselves sit under his teaching and not get too settled and comfortable. Because if you actually, if just, just read the Sermon on the Mount. If, you, if you're comfortable reading the Sermon on the Mount, you're not reading the Sermon on the Mount. As you sit under Jesus' teaching, you'll discover that you're not in a place to be lecturing anybody. We're all on a journey and there is a danger of hypocrisy and religious bigotry that says my way of seeing things is right which watch it because you're actually putting yourself in God's place when you do that so I think that's the first group of Pharisees 
and, and we've got to watch ourselves in that group. Is anything? Second group of Pharisees are people who probably would, would be represented by the group who say, I don't have a religion. And are then very quick to tell everybody what they should do and shouldn't do. It's interesting that the, 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 the Bureau of Statistics, they, they, they put a little note saying, we don't know any way to do it, but we've got to name not having a religion as a religion. And it's interesting they choose to do that because it is. You can't not have a belief system. You have a belief system. And if your belief system is that there is no God, chances are, you may not say this, but in your world, you're God. And so there is a real danger of pharisaical behaviour from people who say that there is no God. It's interesting how quickly that group of people are to lean into things like cancel culture and condemning other people and pointing fingers. Now, it's easy for, you know, it's easy to look at that and say, well, we don't do that, do we? Well, that, that's not true. We fall into the same problems. But we've got to watch that that group of people are also a group of people who can shut the door of the kingdom on people because they're so zealous in, in propagating their way of seeing things that they undermine people's own journey of faith. And I want to say there's one more group that I think are probably the least troubling group, the most comfortable group, uh, and are the group that is fastest diminishing. They're the group who would call themselves Christians, may turn up to church on a Christmas or Easter, uh, but are Christians largely because they're Australians or Americans or English or that they're cultural Christians. Uh, and the fact that they call themselves Christians and invite other people to live that kind of life means that they too get inoculated to the truth of who Jesus is. They th- that there's a tame, safe little Jesus that they, uh, that they might go and sing about at Christmas or sing a couple of carols or whatever. Uh, but, they, but increasingly that group, because it's no longer the cultural thing to do, increasingly, I think one of the, the facts of the census is that that group is rapidly diminishing because it's no longer culturally uh, a, a cool thing to be a Christian. So I think that represents actually a, a large number of the numbers. So they're the three groups of Pharisees, in my view, in our culture. Each of these three groups shut the door on the kingdom of heaven and the biggest barrier to the kingdom of heaven coming on earth as Jesus teaches us to pray is people who are confident, confidently believing wrong stories about what is true. That can be us. That can be people who say they're not Christians. That can be people who say they are Christians who turn up on Sunday morning. So I, I think I'm just going to take a moment here to sensitise us about what it is you think God would actually, if we stop and if we let ourselves imagine the, the Bible stories we're familiar with, the, the teachings of Jesus, let's just for a moment 
sensitise ourselves to... If God was to come here, if Jesus was to turn up this morning and be here and stand here and say, let's talk about the things I care about in Hobart, the things I'm, I'm concerned about in Hobart. I wonder, what, I wonder if his concerns would match our concerns. I wonder what would be the top 10 things he'd be saying he's concerned about. We'd love to hear your answers to this question. What do you think God cares about in Hobart? What do you think God actually cares about in Hobart that the Pharisees would miss? So let's take, take a moment. Uh, the question will come up on the screen when I go like that. Look at that. This is the question. What are the things that God would want to be different in Hobart? If Jesus was to turn up, what, what are the things he would care about as he looked around Hobart? Okay. Well, look, it's been great to get the responses. You can see there's some themes that have clearly emerged. Poverty, loneliness, selfishness, homelessness, racism. And uh, I'll be, it raises some questions. If, if, if our sense is this is the stuff God cares about, I wonder how much of our week how our days is spent thinking about this thing, this stuff, or more than thinking about it, doing stuff about it. I think this is part of the, what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, is saying, you guys are all about the religious show, but you're just not caring about what God actually cares about. One of the great challenges in Christian history is that Christians often unknowingly and with the best intentions in the world, brought their culture with them into the cultures they were sharing the gospel with. They actually colonised the cultures that they were sharing the gospel with, sometimes overtly uh, and brought armies with them, sadly, sometimes with the best will in the world, uh, people started to understand that Jesus and Coca-Cola got, were the same kind of thing. And so in some countries, uh, the word Christian means rich white American uh, because we've smuggled in or colonised uh, cultures when we really, our heart was to share Jesus. Because we often don't know the level at which we've been shaped by our culture and we just bring us. In fact, they, they reckon that the, the only example in the whole of Christian history, apart from the New Testament church, where Paul made it very specific. He's saying, look, I, when I'm with the Greeks, I'm going to act like the Greeks. When I'm with the Jews, I'm going to act like the Jews. I'm going to be all things to all people. So the uh, by any means, I'll save some. He's, he's basically saying, I'm going to put my culture aside as best I can and not let it get in the road. They reckon the only person in Christian history, apart from the Apostle Paul and the New Testament church, to have pulled off what it means to share Jesus in a culture in a way that respects the culture was actually St. Patrick in Ireland, uh, who was able to come into Ireland and share the truth of the gospel in a way that changed Ireland in one generation completely. It went from being a completely non-Christian place to being a completely uh, place that, uh, that was infiltrated with the gospel in one generation. And he did it by respecting the culture. Now, I don't think that is actually the major problem 
for us anymore as Christians. I don't think the danger of us colonising the people we're speaking about Jesus to is not the, the greatest risk. The greatest risk now for Christians is that the culture we are in colonises us. The greatest risk for us now is that the culture we are in colonises us. Jesus has already demonstrated that for the Pharisees, they cared much more about what people thought of them, about the culture around them, than they did about God himself. They were colonised by the culture themselves. Jesus, last week we were saying, Jesus told them, everything, and spoke about them, everything they do is done for people to see. And so, if we're not going to fall into the trap of being Pharisees, we've got to be sensitive to the level at which our culture impacts us. Jesus is calling, as he says this, he's speaking to a big group of people that includes, you can picture a big group of people around Jesus and includes there's probably a little pocket of Pharisees over there who are feeling really uncomfortable because he's directly talking to them now. As he says... Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you've made them twice as much a child of hell as you are. This isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is it? Jesus is not pulling his punches as he looks them in the eyes and, and says, you are taking people away from the truth. And it matters. He, it's clear he is deeply worried about the impact the Pharisees will have on his followers. He warns his followers in Matthew 16, 6, 16, 11 to 12, Mark 8, 15 and Luke 12, 1 to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch out for the influence of the people who are around you, he's telling his followers. And he's now telling the Pharisees here in Matthew 23, Your influence is death. One of the things we know is the people who you hang around are going to define you. The people who you hang around, the the five people who are closest to you are going to shape you. There is a, a... a law in social sciences they, saw, they call the social proximity effect, and they've demonstrated it. You are much more likely to smoke or drink if your friends smoke or drink. You're much more likely to buy things that your friends buy. You're much more likely to adopt the values of the people you hang around with unless you have some solid anchor for your soul. And that's why the church is meant to be a counterculture, where we remind each other that the values of the culture are largely anti-Christ. And that's why for us things like dinner together aren't just a nice idea, or kingdom cells aren't just a nice idea, you need fellowship. You need fellowship. The Pharisees are blind. They are so shaped by the world they've grown up in, they just don't see the kingdom of God. 
They don't see or care about what God cares about. And yet, they're happy to tell other people how they should live their lives. So Jesus calls them blind guides. And then he pulls apart one of their arguments where they're saying, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath, you blind fools, what's greater? The gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift of the altar is bound to that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Jesus has already taught them in the Sermon on the Mount, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that is actually from the devil, is what he says. Anything beyond that is a problem. We know from archaeology now and and the records we've got, is at this stage in Jesus' time, there was a whole system for what oaths you had to keep. There were whole sections of commentaries written about what oaths you have to keep and what oaths you don't have to keep. Jesus would be wanting us to hear, stop worrying about the right form of words or the right clothes or the right songs to sing or, you know, stop worrying about what people think about you. Stop worrying, looking for the loopholes. Live with integrity and let your yes be yes and your no be no, is what Jesus would be saying to us. And interestingly enough, what he keeps doing is he talks about all those things, he keeps pulling back. And this is one of the things we need to understand about the kingdom of God. Often we'll want to argue about minute detail. There'll be a particular issue that we want to prove that we're right about. Uh, I've got sucked into that a little bit on the weekend. Uh, There was a TikTok video uh, of someone who was trying to demonstrate that the Bible said sex before marriage, the Bible doesn't say that sex before marriage is wrong. Uh, And he just misquoted the Bible completely. Uh, And I've I've heard that same argument, the way he phrased it from a a number of different sources. So I spent two and a half thousand words demonstrating why he was wrong. Uh, uh, But uh, what, one of the things I knew as I was doing it, and, I, and I, I think it's right, if people are speaking things that aren't true, it's really right to correct that, or ha- do your best to correct it, but to, to know that even as you start that conversation, it's always a much bigger conversation. It's always a much bigger conversation than you can neatly put, certainly than you can neatly put in 60 seconds on a TikTok, let me tell you. Uh, and much broader, like I end up having some really valuable conversations with people on Facebook afterwards who are pointing out, yeah, but you're missing this. I mean, yeah, I know, it's two and a half thousand words, give me a break. But there, it is such a complicated issue. In, name any issue, and if you think it's simple, you're not seeing the issue. Jesus goes on to point that out to the Pharisees. He says, you, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. 
It's so easy to want to, you know, get into the, the minute detail. Jesus is saying, yeah, sure, tithe your money, but, but let's talk about what really matters. You notice the, the, the list of words we chucked up? They were all about justice, mercy and faithfulness, weren't they? We know intuitively what God cares about. Jesus says clearly what God cares about, justice, mercy and faithfulness. Some people react against some of the spiritual practices as they're described in the Bible, like tithing, and they're saying, look, you know, New Testament, New Covenant, we don't have to worry about tithing anymore. And, and people get into an argument of whether we should tithe or whether we shouldn't tithe, which again is a really good example of missing the point. The point is that Jesus is Lord. And tithing was meant to be a principle by giving God the first 10% of your money. What you're actually saying is, he's got all my money. I, all my money comes under his lordship. And if you find yourself pushing back against tithing because you, you, know, you don't want to give God the first 10%, he's not actually worried about the 10%. He's worried about 100%. He's worried about your whole life. And what he says is, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Your money is a bit of an indicator of your heart. And how you're spending your money is an indicator about what really matters. And that's why tithing is important. Same with the idea of Sabbath. You get caught up about what day it should happen and should it, do we need to have a Sabbath. The principle is, if you can't take a day off and trust that God will look after the world then chances are you may not be allowing him to be God. The, the point of the Sabbath was a, a, a weekly reminder that the world isn't on your shoulders. And don't we need that? I, I think that if we're to be followers of Jesus, we need to, like Jesus, continually pull back from the micro and see the truth of the complicated questions. Dom held a Kamara. There's a Catholic priest who said, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. We do need to feed the poor, but we also need to face questions of why the poor have no food. We do need to provide shelter for the homeless but we've got to face the questions of why people are homeless in the first place. And as someone who has lived for five years in a shelter for homeless young people, I've got to tell you, it's much more complicated than just giving them a roof over their heads. We've got to see the big picture, the big issues of justice, mercy and faithfulness, as Jesus says. I've got some examples in the notes of some of the big issues that I, I think where it's tempting to want to focus on the micro but Jesus calls us back to the macro. To cause, and if you, as I said, if you think you have a simple answer to the problems of the world, you're not seeing the questions. So I want to ask you this question. What are the big questions that God has on your heart? I was talking with Bruce this morning about Tassie's facing a, a, a shortage of doctors and there really is no simple answer. There really, there isn't a simple answer. So, so what do we do about that? Just say, oh, it's too bad, but it's going to happen. What is God asking of you? I mean, he may not be asking you anything of that, but I'll bet you there are some big questions 
Notice that some of the, big, the biggest words there were loneliness. I do know he's calling you to, re, to respond to that, both in your life and the life of others. What are, the, what are the big questions that Jesus was comfortable to step into and calls the Pharisees out to see? As a church, we've got to watch the temptation to be Pharisees where we want to boil things down to neat and tidy packages and tell everybody what they should do. People are complicated. The world's messy. And Jesus invites us to step in and live in the tension between the messiness of the world and the truth and beauty of who he is and bring his love to the world. But as we do that, you better know this. There is no neat and tidy way to step into the mess of the world. It cost Jesus everything. And that same son of God looks you in the eyes and says, take up your cross. Step into the gap between the pain of the world and the truth and beauty of who God is and his love. And we will only be able to do that if we know deeply that we are loved. That, the, that while we are called to take up our cross and steer away from the cliches and simplistic answers, we can only do that because of the cross. That was the answer. As human beings, it's really hard for us to, to work out how do you balance justice and mercy and faithfulness, because often they look like they're opposites. On the cross, God's justice met his mercy and faithfulness, and that is the pattern. We need God's help, and Hobart needs Jesus' hope, don't you reckon?